Welcome to the Coconuts Podcast. Today is August 14th, 2020. The Coconuts Podcast delivers impactful, weird, and wondrous reporting by our journalists on the ground in eight cities, Singapore, Bangkok, Hong Kong, Manila, Jakarta, KL, Yangon, and Bali. Listen to headline news and insightful interviews on matters large and small designed for people located in or curious about Southeast Asia and Hong Kong. I'm Byron Perry. I'm Vim Shanmugam. And I'm Sam Lee. So how was your guys' National Day long weekend? We had a long weekend here in Singapore last weekend. Good, good. Fireworks and stuff. Like for the first time, I could see it from my window. That was nice, I guess. You guess? I guess, like. Suggesting something? I don't know, like. (laughs) Yay, we don't have to go to the Padang together. We can look at it from outside our windows. Exciting stuff. Thanks, government. I didn't hear anything from where I live, which I think I've heard fireworks previous years. So I didn't stick my head out and fireworks did not (laughs) enter my my headspace. Interesting. What's the nearest like fireworks location for you then? Well, just the main one, I think, the like Padang and and CBD. Oh, yeah, because they were all spread out, right? Like all over the island. Yeah, in 10 places. Wow. Oh, okay. I, like- I didn't even know that. I mean, was there one? <laughs> was there one at the CBD? Maybe that's why. Because previous years, it's always kind of just been, I thought, like over Marina Bay, and I could kind of uh, hear them and see them if I poke my head around the building. Oh. I mean, I think going forward, I feel like this might be a better idea. Don't you think? Like everyone gets a chance to see the fireworks kind of close to them, close to them, well, except Byron. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but. Yeah, instead of just having it in one place, that might be, that might be kind of nice. Mm. Could this be the new normal of fireworks in Singapore? Wow, let's. Was it, more, <laughs> was it more expensive? Is my question. You know, you know, instead of like one big one at Marina Bay, um, there was yeah. like ten, I guess, smaller ones. So like, you know, <laughs> there's always the running joke where like the fireworks is just our taxpayers' money going up in smoke. So like mm. now that there's ten, literally, who knows? Literally. Mm-hmm. Probably it's about the same, although maybe, yeah, yeah, I would think when they do it downtown, they gather a bunch down there and they just spread it out to 10 locations when they're spreading it out. Mm. Um, But there's been a lot of stories I've seen and talk of really like discovering more parts of Singapore since we can't go anywhere. Are you guys doing Mm -hmm. any of that yet and exploring the four corners and every inch of Singapore (laughs) or just staying home? Well, I think the walk from my room to the fridge is quite long. Yeah, I've seen a lot on the way there. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I have a little bit. I mean, I think being, I live in the north, northeast-ish. Mm-hmm. Where for the longest time, I didn't go anywhere, like, around here. So um, just realizing that, oh, you know, I can find this place or that place that, that's much closer to where I am versus, like, the sort of go-to, like, central areas, like, I think has been quite different now i feel like i don't really want to go meet friends in you know sort of the more central party <laughs> i don't know like i think like it's a convenience of it right it's oh yeah mm. this is much, much closer so much closer to our, where we yeah absolutely yeah well summer why don't you take us into our top stories okay okay our top stories of the week uh we start off in jakarta where Indomie flavored ice cream is now a thing and it's topped with fried shallots, by the way. You know, like just like when you prepare the actual meal and there's a little flavor packet of flavor. And yeah, it puzzles and revolts upon launch. But yeah, while nothing has quite replaced the OG Indomie Migoring, that means fried noodles, 
uh, mm-hmm. in our noodle loving hearts, we here at Coconuts appreciate like the, you know the unique takes on the beloved instant noodle brand. But is this where we, as a collective of civilized human beings, should have drawn the line? Yeah, you might have noticed our meagering obsession from our coverage of a slew of Indomie in- uh, innovations over the years, including tasting the limited uh, edition Chitato flavored meagering. So Chitato is a potato chip brand. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there was also Indomie donuts, Indomie cake, and the absolute abomination that is the soupy noodle sandwich, me goring oh. fried chicken burger, me goring scented candles in Australia. Yeah, oh, nah, dear. mate. And the Indomie burrito made by an Indonesian-born chef in LA. The last one might be okay, still be acceptable. that sounded awesome. No, that, that, that looked <laughs> yeah. cool. I wanted yeah, that. Yeah, man. Yeah, but, you know, just nothing has come close to the sheer shock value that this latest Indomie creation has. It's literally Indomie goreng flavored ice cream by West Jakarta based creamery Holy Ice Cream who claims that this fusion is the first of its kind in Indonesia and you know oh. what I believe you guys that's oh. nasty it's so nasty you gotta see the photo as well it looks like one of those like cute hipsy, uh, hipster jars um, oh, of like, no. like those homemade candles if anything maybe oh, it can double no. as a candle light it on fire oh good lord um, yeah I'm not here for Indomie flavored ice cream next <laughs> Though I will would say, would you guys I, try it? I would, <laughs> just for the shits and giggles. It's like I did try a chicken rice ice cream before; it was horrific, but you know it was quite oh. funny. Yeah, it was at this um, art festival, which I don't remember the name right now, but yeah, they were doing some, you know, putting local flavors on display, and then it was literally um, kind of just vanilla ice cream with bits of rice in there, cooked rice, and it was topped off with black sauce and chicken rice chili on top. <laughs> oh my god, it was so bad. Oh dear. <laughs> Yeah, there's no chicken. This is really, I mean, almost any really savory um, non dessert dish is not going to work as ice cream. But I feel like something like Indomie is going to work less than everything else because they're so salty and they're so Mm. umami and spicy flavored. Just to combine that with what I'm sure is super sweet ice cream is just no, just no, please. Mm hmm. Oh, I was just going to talk about Twitter because, of course, you know, like, uh, that's where the intelligent discourse is. And, yeah, of course, we get comments like, every day we stray further from God. And, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Agreed on that one. <laughs> Let's see uh, how long gonna... it lasts. I don't think this is going to become a thing. Oh, but... no, I Yeah. I mean, we we're just coming off of National Day. Last year, National Day in Singapore, didn't Cold Stone release the Nasilama ice cream? Oh, my guys... God. You guys yes, remember they, that? They sent it to us, dude. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, with the ikan bilis. I'm like, yeah. how? Why? <laughs> how and why did this yeah. happen? Sambal oh, on ice cream. Mm. Did you try it, Summer? I did, yeah. Uh, we were all screaming about it around the communal dining table in the office. It was a wonderful time. And was <laughs> it pretty gross? Or... Actually, I feel like nasi lemak could work slightly better than some other savory dishes. Because it's kind of sweet. Yeah. The coconut rice is kind of sweet. Yeah, yeah. So theoretically, maybe yes. But, you know, it's just like wrapping. Yeah, in theory, like, you know, the salty sweet combo, like salted caramel is like good. But then mm. like if you do Ikan Billy's vanilla ice cream, it's like, hang on a second. Let me wrap my head around this first, you know, so it makes sense before I taste it. Bizarre. It's a whole bizarre. journey. Mm-hmm. Bizarre food indeed. Mm. Well, speaking of bizarre food, on to Manila for our next story. Guys, I have some sad news. What? what Very sad it? news. Our viral sensation, a viral Quezon City ostrich has died of stress. But not only that, he's been cooked into adobo. 
Wait a damn second. Is this the guy that was running around last week that we reported on? Just last week, he was running around alive. Yeah. Now he's a dobo. <laughs> One of the two ostriches Just what you're that telling me? viral after running around Quezon City gated community last week has not only died of stress, but was also cooked into a topo. Oh, the no. lawyer of the first owner confirmed yesterday. Oh, man. Um, attorney Charlie Pasquale told Manila Bulletin that uh, the owner... Jonathan Cruz, um, after the bird unfortunately died of stress, but he found out the next day that the caretakers actually cooked the poor bird into a, an adobo because they didn't want the fowl's carcass to go to waste. Oh my! I think that's great. I mean, <laughs> everybody wins. We were talking last week about how nutritious ostrich meat is. <laughs> adobo yeah. is a wonderful dish. Um, dying of stress, that's weird i don't know i guess it just who knows maybe that's a euphemism for something else but certainly <laughs> an ostrich being loose on the streets of metro manila um not the best environment for it so yeah at least some people got fed and some some delicious adobo was eaten i'm sure it was a unique adobo that they had never had before i guess yeah. and it's not yeah. that they chased him down and decided we're gonna make you adobo today you know it's just you know <laughs> Circumstances. Okay. I think stress means somebody chased it down and um Oh yeah, Lord. Chopped its okay. Head off. <laughs> oh, I see it now. <laughs> Shit. Probably because of like I mean it couldn't handle COVID nineteen needed to get out, you know. Mm. Oh, it just get couldn't out. handle the being stuck at home anymore. Yeah. Needed to roam free. Unfortunately it didn't roam too far and now it's resting places. Well, R.I.P. Viral Ostrich. Um, I hope the adobo was tasty. I guess that's really all we can say. Is it weird that I kind of want to taste it? Oh, I absolutely do. I'm telling you, ostrich is awesome. And so is adobo. So it should be good with some rice. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> oh, Lord. Maybe that can become a thing. Let's make that a thing, not the Indomie ice cream. Stress ostriches that we could cook. They do different things. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, on to Hong Kong, well, where the top story was the arrest of Jimmy Lai, the tycoon founder of Apple Daily, one of the biggest and most famous local language media companies in Hong Kong, who is also very famously outspoken um, pro-democracy in Hong Kong, anti-Chinese um, Communist Party. Um, Jimmy Lai was arrested under the new national security law. Uh, they raided the offices of Apple Daily. They gave him kind of a perp walk through the office. And he's definitely um, the most high profile person who has been arrested under the new national security law. So it was quite, frankly, disturbing for anyone in the media industry to see, um, you know, this high profile media boss and his office be raided and him be arrested for it's not exactly clear yet what I don't think, but violating the national security law in Hong Kong, which is very vague. But a little funny thing that happened is that um, about a dozen people who had gathered outside the headquarters of Apple Daily um, and wanted to turn it into a party. I think they had popped champagne and we're all excited about it, um, got uh, busted themselves and fined for violating uh, social distancing. So that kind of backfired. Police said seven people, including three males and four females, were handed penalty notices for breaching the gathering ban 
and the the offense carries a fixed fine of two thousand Hong Kong dollars uh, or about two hundred fifty eight USD. So um, yeah, highest profile arrest so far in Hong Kong. Some pro Beijing revelers who wanted to celebrate it with champs right outside the uh, office got busted. So that was a little nugget of humor in this otherwise quite worrisome story. Well, I mean, it's intense times, right? Like in in Hong Kong, like no one knows what's happening. Everything's being crunched down. Yeah. I was having a debate with my friend about whether this was surprising because I was surprised. Um, but it turns out that Jimmy Lai, you know, that somebody, he's very high profile. He's been profiled mm. in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and um, has an amazing rags to riches story. He's from mainland province, I think Guangdong province, or mainland China, Guangdong province. And I believe kind of snuck across to Hong Kong with nothing and built this great empire. But, uh, Apparently, he himself had said he expected to be arrested. So perhaps it wasn't that much of a surprise as I thought. But I definitely know that in the media industry of Hong Kong, this is the most worrisome event so far, probably, um, mm. since this new national security law was passed, which is only about a month ago. So, um, yeah, it's being enforced very broadly. Oh, and over in Yangon, egg, chicken, or truck? Meet 2020's Miss Universe Myanmar costumes, and y'all really need to click into this article and see the photos, because damn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Myanmar's juicy social media dramas unfold maddeningly every day with crazy users slinging harsh comments. And there's always something for the keyboard warriors to battle over. And this week, it is the very serious matter of national beauty pageant costumes driving the attention of thousands. Um, specifically, a storm of opinions has been raging online after photos of all the regional costume candidates for Miss Miss Universe Myanmar were posted online and went viral. Some love them, but others find them overly ridic. And mm. ridic they are. They ridiculous. Are so ridiculous, eh? But there are more <laughs> than 30 costumes that bear remarkable names of locales such as Mandalay, Yangon, Napidol. Is it, am I pronouncing that right? But okay. Uh, yeah. Um, the fabulous costumes veer from fantasy folklore to fronting consumer goods. One looks like a truck. And yeah, they quickly became punchlines to jokes, as usual, by merciless netizens. Which one's your favorite? Oh my god, I don't know. There's one that looks like an egg, one looks like a chicken. Which came first? Who knows? All are great. They're really creative and really cool. I'm looking yeah. at them right now. They're very elaborate. It's like, they, they definitely put like, you know, the Victoria's Secret fashion show uh, to shame. One is basically yeah. a garden with some barrels. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> That's Mother Nature right there. <laughs> and yeah, one looks like the actual, you know, Chinese New Year decorations in Icon Siam. Uh, when <laughs> I went over there to Bangkok, like this is literally the whole mall. <laughs> it's amazing. I hey, think I like the truck be. one maybe the best. She's got mm. headlights on top of her head. Um, she's just embracing <laughs> truck vibes and I'm mm -hmm. here for it. She just ended like the Transformers career like that. <laughs> I mean, you got to say like they're definitely unique. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All of them. Very creative. I mean, I'm surprised people are talking shit about them. I think they're cool. I actually think the kind of the egg one is kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, very Lady Gaga twenty uh, circa two thousand and nine. You know, you know, right? Like, yeah. yeah. Well, on to Singapore, where controversy reigns, and we uh -oh. love. It. Yep. Uh, so, if you guys know, uh, popular fitness YouTuber Chloe Ting has come out and said a Singaporean bodybuilder is defaming her. So. Uh, to give you guys some context, uh, 
uh, YouTuber Chloe Ting. She does a lot of workouts on YouTube. Uh, is very very popular from formerly from Brunei, uh, mm-hmm. but based in Australia. But uh, in June, a Instagram profile, a Singapore bodybuilder called Dino Kang, or at Dino Kang, came up with a string of 62 Instagram stories t- entitled "The Scoop on Chloe Ting." Basically, um, saying that she is a fraud and her workouts are all clickbaity, and that um, she's the epitome of toxic body image, and yeah, it's a whole bunch of like controversy. And um, now Chloe Ting is saying that, um, hey, you know, this guy is trying to body shame me and uh, taking a lot of my YouTube titles literally, basically like um, she's a lot of clickbait titles, which is not just her. Mm-hmm. A lot of uh, fitness YouTubers do it, but they will say things like "get abs in two weeks" or twelve minutes. Um, and you know, his retort: "You can't do a workout for two weeks uh, for twelve minutes and get toned abs. You need to change your diet." It's a mm-hmm. whole whole bunch of other stuff as well. So, um, yeah, like basically, she pick, he he picked out a lot of like videos from her past and kind of started like breaking them down. And she's not having it. So, um, yeah, once again. Fight! another drama love it hmm so basically he's saying her fitness videos are full of shit because they're not actually going to get you in shape yeah i think like he's trying to say that like there's more to it like you know um for example he pointed out like in one of the videos um there were six women who did a workout and you know they showed the before and after uh, f- from two weeks and it's a 10 minute workout every day. And his claim was that, yeah, they definitely, uh, you know, the main reason for their progress is because they stopped eating crap, which is not shown, which is not shown on video hmm. versus, you know, just doing a 10 minute workout because if I work workout every day and I ate like McDonald's for, <laughs> for breakfast, Burger King for lunch and, you know, KFC for dinner, pretty sure. I'm not going to look like that after two weeks. So I think that was his claim. Um, And she's trying to say that, hey, I never claimed that anyway. Like, you know, she does promote in a lot of her videos, like, you know, the balance of eating, um, eating well and also working out at the same time. Uh, So, you know, it's, 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 you know, two sites that we enjoy. Um, We like the, the drama of it all. For sure. And she does get like millions of views on each of these videos. Like if you've seen those, Mm. I think her most popular one had like over 200 million views and it was something like get abs. Oh I don't know, was God. it in one or two weeks, you know? And of course, reading that, I would be hopeful, yeah. but you know, I'm no like fitness expert, but also that kind of sounds like a very bold claim. I don't know. <laughs> hmm. What are they yeah. saying on the, uh, on the tweets, Summer? Oh, Twitter correspondent, uh, <laughs> Summer, checking in. Um, I did go and see this fitness trainer. His name is Dino, Dino Kang, uh, mm. when he did post those Insta stories. And yeah, um, he is a personal trainer himself, so I would think that maybe he has, you know, some credit in, you know, like picking up, picking apart her videos and the stuff she said. So what's the general, I mean, this is causing controversy. Everybody's talking about it. I'm sure people must be taking a side. Are people generally on his side or on Chloe Ting's side, or is it actually split? That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, like, for my friends, like, I mean, some of them are Chloe Ting, like, uh, advocates, they they love her videos. So they're very much like, hey, yeah, she's not saying that, you know, you know, it's part of like a bigger, like, nutritional, um, and nutritional and workout plan. But mm-hmm. it, her titles are meant for people to click on them, you know, that's, yeah. you know, 
not not completely her fault, but she knows what she's doing. And I think like yeah. for this guy as well, yeah, like I mean, he needs to know that it's not just her. There's a whole bunch of other YouTubers who to do the same thing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so it might be just that she's someone that that he knows, and that could be some you know instance of wanting to be a little bit more famous, infamous maybe uh, amongst all. So who knows? It's all for it's all for the likes, man. It's all for the likes. Mm-hmm. Or the views in this case on, yeah, on the- uh, YouTube. Yeah. But yeah, she's huge. My wife has um, worked out to some of her videos, so I had heard of her. Um, but there's so much. I mean, misleading titles, misleading thumbnails. Welcome to YouTube. They almost tell you to do that, basically. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you'll yeah. never believe how I got two-minute abs in one minute. And here's a photo <laughs> of my abs superimposed with like a massive face. And yeah. Yeah. Well, on to Thailand, or should I say Thailand, where (laughs) actually it wasn't even in Thailand. It was somewhere in the U.S. But the big story this week in Bangkok, which we were all over because it was so funny, is that U.S. president and very stable genius Donald Trump made headlines and amazed the people of the world by calling Thailand Thailand in a speech. (laughs) It was at a campaign event. And basically, he dropped his unique take on the word Thailand while grousing about one of his favorite pet grievances, perceived unfair trade. And we can play you the clip. Shifting production to Thailand. Um, The Internet went nuts. Just absolutely nuts. Uh, Some comments were, I used to frequent a strip club called Thailand. Great happy hour. (laughs) Or I love Thai food. Oh, Lord. (laughs) But one of the funniest things that happened on Twitter was that this right-wing provocateur, absolute idiot, Dinesh D'Souza, <laughs> um, basically the hill that he died on was that it actually is pronounced Thailand, which mm-hmm. is 100% wrong. <laughs> what he said is, I'm highly amused to see supposedly sophisticated media types snickering at Donald Trump for saying Thailand. These faux sophisticates don't realize Trump's way of saying it is right. Thailand is the crude lingo of people who have never been to Thailand. <laughs> what a moron. And people were responding to him and saying, no, you're totally wrong. Um, here's the deal with the Thailand versus Thailand pronunciation. It's pronounced Thailand. That's the way that Thai people pronounce it. T-H-A-I is pronounced Thai. They are Thai. They're not Thai. Um, some nationalities do pronounce it Thailand, though, actually. Mainly in the Philippines, they say Thailand, and I believe in India as well, they do say Thailand. So that's their way of saying it kind of domestically where it flies, but internationally, globally, within Thailand, the actual country that we're talking about, um, Mm. but they would say Thailand. They would never say Thailand. That's 100% wrong. So it was a little viral slip up from the commander in chief that um, set the internet alight and everybody had a lot of fun talking about it. (laughs) Oh, dumbass. Oh, here's another tweet. This land is your land. This land is Thailand. <laughs> it's so, yeah. I mean, does anything even surprise you anymore? I feel anything that comes out of his mouth um, like, at from, this point. From, from his track record where, like, you know, he has openly stated that he wants to date his daughter. Yeah, not surprised. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to be honest, yeah. this was harmless and and silly thank god he wasn't like i mean i don't think he really offended thai people very much um because they don't really care and they know he's an idiot but um Mm. this was at least just a harmless stupid throwaway comment as opposed to like 
you know, starting a nuclear war or offending one of our oldest allies. So <laughs> allies. So yeah. In terms of Trump gaffes, I think this was pretty tame. Yeah. Yeah. Vice does some really funny um, super cuts of stupid things that he says. I don't know. Have you guys ever seen those? Not from Vice, just like probably from like some talk show or something, you know? Yeah. yeah Trevor Noah's. Yeah. yeah, he does some good ones too. But Vice has done ones which I haven't really seen elsewhere where they really just focus on one little phrase that he'll always yeah. say. Like, for example, like billions and billions and billions and billions and millions and billions and trillions, just super cutting from like 20 different speeches or. Oh, like nobody knows better than I do. Nobody knows women better than I do. Nobody knows America better than I do. Nobody knows taxes better than I do. Nobody knows. <laughs> nobody knows better. It'll than literally I do. be like a five-minute supercut yeah. of nonstop Trump saying that. Ugh, there's um, no hands. There's a very popular uh, YouTube channel called Bad Lip Reading, and mm. um, yes. it's, it's amazing. I mean, it's it's even more amazing than well, it's all amazing is what he says at the time. Sure. Well, about Trump, our feature story of this week has to do with him, our feature interview. Um, I spoke with James Crabtree, who is the Singapore-based author of The Billionaire Raj, A Journey Through India's New Gilded Age. Really great book that's all about um, the wealthiest people in India and how they shape policy and business. Uh, a great introduction to how things work. Uh, in India. Before that, he was the Mumbai bureau chief for the Financial Times. He's currently a columnist for the Nikkei Asian Review and um, Foreign Policy, and he is an associate professor of practice at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy here in wow. Singapore. What James and I spoke about, which is very big news this week, is TikTok, Trump, Southeast Asia, and the Splinter Net. Let's give it a listen. So, James, um, you told me you're doing a story for Wired about TikTok. What has been the most interesting thing that you have learned about TikTok in your reporting and writing this story? That's a good question. I, I think I'd be interested to learn about ByteDance, the TikTok parent. So I spent mm -hmm. a lot of time over the last few weeks speaking to people in Washington and also in the, the Chinese technology ecosystem, trying to understand why it is that TikTok has become such a focus for um, for U.S. anxiety over Chinese technology, which on the face of it seems a bit peculiar. TikTok is a website in, or an app in which teenagers make jocular videos, lip syncing, pranks, yeah. that sort of thing. It doesn't, it, it, unlike Huawei, it doesn't immediately lend itself to being seen as a big threat. And, and so it's been interesting to find out about that, but also um, to, to learn about a bite dance itself and the astonishing speed of the the rise of of this company to become one of China's internet giants. TikTok itself was only launched in 2017, and ByteDance only got really going a couple of years before that. So it has been an astonishingly rapid rise for this company that has now found itself slap bang in the middle of this new technology war between the US and China. I, I've been meeting to read some articles about the founder of ByteDance. It sounds like he's a really um, interesting and impressive guy. Do you think he's instrumental in this why do you think TikTok is so popular? So the founder of ByteDance is a, a guy called Zhang Yiming, um, who is a, he's 37, 
Uh, he is a technology entrepreneur, actually very similarly in the vein of figures from Silicon Valley like Mark Zuckerberg. And in fact, to some degree, he appears to model himself and his company on mm -hmm. these American Silicon Valley giants. Uh, what ByteDance has done is to create a, a company that's brilliant at developing mobile apps. So if you think of the US giants, they really haven't introduced a, a knock it out of the park success story, probably since Instagram, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it, in the last 10 years, it's been Facebook and Twitter and Snap and Instagram, but, but there hasn't been much new coming out of Silicon Valley, whereas a company like ByteDance has created four or five huge applications, most of them in China. One of them was a news aggregator. Another one was the precursor to, to TikTok, a short video sharing app. And then there was TikTok itself, which is the international international version of this that doesn't operate in China. And that's partly because the Chinese companies are, are so good at understanding what people want to use on their phones. They're very good at using, uh, developing algorithms to serve up content that people want. And they're ruthless in the way that they, they experiment and push forward and market uh, these services. So, so in a sense, they've taken the model of Silicon Valley and refined it and almost accelerated it. And perhaps it's some of that that has uh, frightened the Americans. Sure. Point blank. What do you think about TikTok's data collection? Is it actually a security risk for America? You know, obviously Trump did this executive order banning it in 45 days. I saw Australia said that they don't think it's a security risk. Um, India did ban it, I believe, and said it is a security risk. It's clear that it collects a lot of data, and I think we can talk about it, that in a second, but do you think it's actually a security risk? I think the case against it is more theoretical than actual. So yeah. the, ca the case against TikTok is that um, it takes a lot of data from its users, which is true of Facebook and everybody else. Um, but because it's a Chinese company, or it, it, its parent is Chinese, TikTok doesn't operate in China, but um, TikTok's parent is Chinese, uh, the accusation is that TikTok will share data with its Chinese parent, and then the Chinese parent will either voluntarily or under duress share data with the Chinese security state. Um, yeah. And even more than that, potentially, that this would allow the Chinese security state to combine data uh, gleaned from TikTok with all sorts of other data that it holds on American citizens, for instance, from other hacking operations. Mm -hmm. Now, there isn't much evidence that I've found to suggest that China is actually doing this. But for, for critics in Washington, even the possibility that they might be able to do this um, if the Chinese Ministry of State Security comes knocking um, is, is enough to warrant action. And there are also concerns that we can talk about about TikTok and political interference um, in the run-up to the US election. But I think the two things that you can say is that TikTok clearly is not as big a security threat as a company like Huawei, which is deeply integrated into core technological networks. Yeah. And when looking to the future, if TikTok is a security threat, then so is everything else. That almost any Chinese tech company is going to be viewed as a potential security threat. And I think that may be the, the biggest implication of the, the whole TikTok farrago, um, which is that that in a sense, if you can make these accusations against TikTok, and some people think they're reasonable, many people think they don't, then you can clearly make these allegations against WeChat or Chinese drone makers or Zoom, uh, which everybody uses for their video calls. In a sense, the bar for what constitutes a national security threat has been very significantly lowered because of the geopolitical tensions between the US and China. Sure. Knowing what we know about the CCP and the Chinese government, don't you believe that 
well, maybe that's insinuating too much, but no company could say no to them if they ever wanted to see any of their data or collect any of their data. Do you think that's true or maybe that's too forward? <laughs> well, the 2017 national security law in, in China, the, the, the law that governs the data and national mm-hmm. security says that any company has to uh, help the Chinese state if it's asked. TikTok has always said, well, we've never been asked. And if we were asked, then we wouldn't comply. So yes, I think there certainly are uh, scenarios in which uh, in, in which the Chinese state could get hold of data that um, that it takes from networks like TikTok. I don't think these are made up concerns. I yeah. just think that they're, they're maybe not as likely as the security threats that you see in in other examples. Um, and the same is true with political interference. So that the second big accusation against TikTok is that um, it could be used to meddle in something like the U.S. election. So President Trump uh, last month held the, the, this famous rally, the comeback post-COVID rally in Oklahoma, yeah. uh, which he spoke humiliatingly to a half-empty stadium when he'd expected the stadium to be full. And in the days subsequent to the rally, it turned out that he'd been the victim of a, of a rather elaborate prank in which liberal-minded you, uh, internet users had asked for lots of tickets and then not shown up, many of them um, all coordinating this using TikTok videos. And this, in a sense, sparked further concern that, that maybe TikTok as a platform could be a venue for interference in political speech, you know, could could China lean on ByteDance to change its algorithm to, uh, or to change TikTok's algorithm so that it would bump up content which was kind to China or hide content that China didn't want, uh, content about uh, Hong Kong, for instance, or what's happening in Xinjiang. Um, and so that has been another cluster of concerns about TikTok, about political interference. But again, the question is, well, does China operate in this way? It certainly yeah. does in Taiwan. It certainly does in Taiwan. China does a lot of information warfare and political meddling uh, in 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 Taiwan and a few other countries in Asia. But there's not actually much evidence that it has tried to engage in Russian-style interference tactics in the United States. So again, this concern is is rather more theoretical than actual. Sure. Do you think that if um, there hadn't been that TikTok campaign, which was apparently led by K-poppers that sort of booked a bunch of tickets for Trump's rally, right, and then didn't show up beforehand, they said they thought there were a million people who had booked tickets and then only like 6,000 showed up. Maybe it was just that that pissed off Trump enough to ban the app. Do you think if that hadn't happened, TikTok would have even been on his radar? That's an interesting question. I haven't seen it reported in exactly that way. I suppose it's not impossible, given the way yeah. that we, under- we understand the president to behave. I, I think what, what that gave was there were a bunch of people in Washington who are very alarmed about China. Some of them are technology specialists, and they worry about things like data and cybercrime and hacking. Some of them are much more new cold warriors. They, they see China as a kind of civilizational threat. They're worried about the Chinese Communist Party, and they see technology as one front in a much broader war. And I think the what happened in Oklahoma with TikTok um, helped to bring this into focus. But I think actually the thing that really brought it into focus was India. You mentioned yeah. it originally. Uh, I mean, there weren't really people in the US talking about an outright ban until the Indians just went ahead and did it. Um, and what that showed you was that actually you could ban TikTok without without very many political consequences. There wasn't much that the Chinese could do about this and you weren't going to get huge protests on the street in large part because TikTok users are young. 
and therefore mm-hmm. they don't have a lot of political power. And so I think it was actually the exemplar of, of the Indian ban, which caught attention in Washington and people began to think, well, instead of you know doing something complicating like trying to get them to divest mm-hmm. um, the purchase of a company called Musical.ly, which ByteDance had bought originally. And so this is formally what the US has been investigating as to whether or not um, they should ask ByteDance to unwind the purchase of this company called Musical.ly. People began to think, well, maybe we could just do a ban outright, and that would be quite helpful um, from an election point of view because it was signal to people that President Trump is getting even tougher on China, which he views as one of his core electoral assets. There's been a lot of blowback from the Chinese government about this ban, and I think it just came out today. I saw that... Um, yeah, they're talking uh, about fighting it quite significantly. I think TikTok itself, and maybe that the deal with you know there was a potential deal for Microsoft to buy TikTok's businesses in the U.S. and Europe. Um, but there's definitely a lot of hypocrisy there, right? Because China bans Facebook and Google and YouTube and Twitter. Um, what do you think about that hypocrisy? Um, and isn't it kind of a bit funny that now um, you know China? Chinese government is outraged about the banning of one of their internet services when they've been doing that to U.S. internet services for years? Yeah, I I, I think that one of the, underneath these two concerns about data privacy and political interference, there's a much broader feeling in the U.S., which is just about reciprocity. You know, they did this to our companies and we've kind of taken it on the chin and we're not going to take it anymore. So we're going to start banning some of theirs. I mean, I think it's it's an understandable impulse Um, Actually, what's interesting from the Chinese side is that you have contradictory impulses. On the one hand, it has been an aim of Chinese technology policy to support the growth of, um, you know, these global tech giants. They're quite proud of having Alibaba and Tencent and now ByteDance, also Huawei in a different way. Um, And what you see now is a kind of tension within China's aims. So on the one hand, China wants to have these, these great global companies that are icons of Chinese modernity. Um, but on the other hand, its foreign policy is undermining them. So mm-hmm. the real, you know, the real reason why this TikTok thing came, it starts with Chinese soldiers making a small incursion in the Himalayas. And it was that yeah. which led to the Indian ban, which prompted the US to look seriously at a US ban. And so you have this tension between Chinese security policy where China is kind of pushing forward in various different fronts in Hong Kong. Um, in in India, in Taiwan, in the South China Sea, wherever it might be, in, in Southeast Asia, and that is undermining its um, goal of building genuinely global technology companies. And it means that that entrepreneurs like um, Zhang Yimin, who who doesn't appear to be a kind of lackey of the Communist Party system, yeah. um, as far as one can tell, that in a sense, what he wants to do is just build a great global tech company. And it's actually China's foreign policies, as much as Trump's, that are getting in the way of this. Sure. Um, And in terms of continuing on the subject of hypocrisy, at the same time, I think there's a lot of hypocrisy from the U.S. tech companies who also, you know, gather incredibly invasive amounts of data and their business models, especially Facebook and Google, are based upon what I would call surveillance capitalism. I think you had Mark Zuckerberg, um, either when he testified on the Hill or in another statement calling out how you know, TikTok is a threat to national security and kind of playing the China card. Um, what are your thoughts on that hypocrisy from the U.S. tech giants and, and where do they stand in this whole TikTok ban 
um, situation. Certainly, I, I saw something like Facebook's usage has gone up 25%, maybe in India since TikTok got banned or something like that. I think at base, probably, if you're sitting in Facebook's head office, then you, um, you, you're pretty pleased about what the U.S. Yeah. government is doing. Um, it, removing TikTok removes a, a plausible competitor. I mean, TikTok has 800 million global users, um, 100 million odd in the U.S. It, it's really the first new entrant um, platform that has had a shot at competing with Facebook. I mean, it's not at the same scale. It doesn't have the same range of products. Um, nonetheless, at a time in which the U.S. has been worrying a lot about tech giants and tech monopolies, then TikTok is a new entrant. And there is an irony in the fact that the U.S. is about to cripple um, uh, yeah. one, one of its most viable new competitors. Uh, but I, th I wonder whether the U.S. tech giants in the end, in their, in their more reflective moments, might worry that, that actually this is a rather short-term point of view, because in a sense, they too are going to suffer as part of this new moment. On the one hand, they're facing U.S. technology technology regulation, which is becoming more arbitrary, more nationalistic. Sometimes that might benefit them, but sometimes it might not. I mean, in the end, the strength of the U.S. system is that it has had, you know, deep pools of capital and a lot of innovation and great universities, but also a, a defensible rules-based system of regulation, business-friendly. And, and that's changing a little bit under Trump, you know, that the rules are being changed. But equally, the, the big casualty in all of this is that it's going to be more difficult for anybody to have the dream in the future of building a truly global technology giant. So that's obviously now true for the Chinese companies. They're not going to be able to operate in the United States, potentially not in Europe, um, in, in, uh, in India. But it's going to be more difficult for a company like Facebook or Google also to have this vision of itself as a truly global operation because it's highly likely that other countries in the world are going to mimic the way the U.S. is talking about um, it's technology rules that if the U.S. is going to introduce these broad national security exceptions for technology regulation, then why shouldn't everybody else do that? That's what India has done. I can see companies and uh, governments in Southeast Asia doing exactly the same. And so I think in the long in the long term, the U.S. tech giants will will see that it's more difficult for them to operate internationally um, because the U.S. is no longer playing this role as a as a kind of leader for an open international technology. System. And in actual fact, it's going the other way and it's becoming a leader in creating a more protective and nationalistic system. Absolutely. I think this has to do with that term that we discussed, the splinter net. What does that term mean? Well, the splinter net is a, is a kind of portmanteau which people use to describe the, the division of different spheres of technology along national yeah. lines. So you have a vision of the future in which there's a Chinese bit of the internet which operates along Chinese lines. Uh, there's an American Western bit, a European bit, which has tighter technology, um, sorry, tighter privacy rules um, uh, as well. And so instead of having the vision which we had 10 years ago of there being one open internet that everyone could get access to, you have a much more complicated world in which it's harder for data to cross borders, which it's harder for companies to, to um, move seamlessly. And that will have a lot of implications, for instance, for companies trying to offer, let's say, cloud uh, computer services. It also has implications for countries like Singapore, where, where we're speaking to you from today, which yeah. Singapore has the aspiration to turn itself into a kind of Switzerland of data in which all comers could come to, to Singapore and, and store their data safely and move it back and forth. Um, it, it's less clear if that kind of vision of a free flow of data um, is going to be viable. And this, in a sense, is going to become particularly pressing in a world of 5G when you have 
much more data going across borders, you know, data coming out of cars and fridges and airplanes and all sorts of things. And so the, the world of data becomes much more central to the way that the internet operates as, as they, they say intelligence moves to the edge of the network. So sure. it, that, that, that's, that's what they're talking about. And TikTok, in a sense, and the rift between the US and China is, is one example um, of this splintering, the splintering in particular of the Chinese and American technological ecosystems. Absolutely. Um, that was kind of my next question. Where does Southeast Asia and Singapore sit in this splinter net? And do you feel that maybe um, countries here will err more on one side, the American side, or err more on the Chinese side? Um, how will this um, change in the global internet impact Southeast Asia? I think Southeast Asia is a fascinating new battlefront in this. On the one hand, with the potential exception of Indonesia, there aren't really any countries in Southeast Asia who are globally significant rule setters. So yeah. you have China, you have the EU, you have America, and you have India. All four of those groups are able to kind of set rules that have global ramifications, given the size of their domestic markets and the reach of their systems. Southeast Asia doesn't quite play in that game. But Southeast Asia is fascinating because, in a sense, it, it, it's still sort of all to play for. On the one hand, the Chinese tech companies have done very well here. So, you know, Alibaba, Tencent, um, they own companies, they're investing in Southeast Asia tech. Um, but the American, the American companies also do well here. So in a, in a sense, particularly now that India has moved itself more into the anti-China camp, Southeast Asia as a group um, is one of the, the, the areas that the Chinese and American tech companies still have to fight over. Um, and I think that you'll see that continuing. I don't, I don't, I think in a sense, Southeast Asia will try to balance between the two, which is what it does geopolitically. And it will also try to do that technologically. But on the other hand, you are seeing in Myanmar, uh, in Indonesia, in other countries, you, you are going to see tighter, more nationalistic data laws. So data localization, where data has to be, you know, data used on Indonesians has to be kept in Indonesia. So you're going to see some of the same kind of rules that are brought in, that are being brought in in countries like America brought in here as well. And so that will just make it a little bit more difficult for both the Chinese and the American tech companies to operate here. And it may give some advantage to companies like Grab or Gojek, which at some point in the future obviously have aspirations to, to turn themselves into Southeast Asia-based giant tech companies uh, of yeah. the, you know, something of the scale of the Chinese and American ones. None of them have really succeeded, though, in becoming a regional super app, have they, Grab or Gojek? Do you think that there's a bright future for them to become regional super apps, which both of them, I think, are aspiring to be, or, or that this is bad news for them? I think it's hard to say. They definitely want to do that, but it's a damn complicated uh, system, yeah. right? You, you know, you, you, you have in, within Southeast Asia, you span the gamut from one of the richest countries in the world in Singapore and Brunei to some of the poorest in, in Myanmar, Cambodia and Laos. It's very complicated regulation. Um, and, and so it doesn't really surprise me that it, it's harder, much harder for a company like Grab or Gojek to treat Southeast Asia as a, as a kind of one base region in the way that Facebook would do for the US or even Reliance Geo would, um, would in India. Nonetheless, Southeast Asia tech has been having a kind of moment in the sun 
uh, of late. There's been uh, pre-COVID, at least, there was lots yeah. of investment coming in. Investors were getting excited, but it's still a region that is open to Chinese money, which is no longer true in India. It's still a region that's open to American money. And so I think you are going to see the continual growth of, of a kind of Southeast Asia tech scene. I, I just don't think it's realistic uh, as was the case in India, um, that they're going to be able to kind of mimic the the hockey stick growth that you saw of tech companies in China 10 years ago. I think that was a kind of one-off that was partly to do with the Chinese system and partly to do with, with the stage of economic development that the world was at then. Things sure. are harder now. They're harder because of COVID. They're harder because of regulation. Um, so I think the future of a Southeast Asia tech is pretty bright. But I think you have to be realistic about, in a sense, the speed at which it's going to move. Sure. Um, as a final question, um, the U.S. election is coming in November. As we know, uh, it's looking probable that Trump loses. Fingers crossed for me. I'm very openly a Trump hater. <laughs> um, and that Biden may win, who may or may not be m more or less tough on China. You know, I think the, the general anti-China attitude in the U.S. is bipartisan right now. But certainly he probably will not be as capricious and um, all over the map as Trump. Um, so that's a big factor that will come into play soon. But just overall, and, and this is a tough question, but do you think that this splintering of the Internet will continue or that with factors like Biden potentially being elected, we may not see this trend you know, come into being as much as some are thinking that there is an, a, a chance for free and open internet globally in the future? I think Biden is going to be a little bit less aggressive and a little bit less erratic in the way that yeah. he pursues this agenda. But I see no evidence that he's going to reverse much of what Trump has done. So it's an interesting yeah. question. Would, would Trump have gone out? Would Biden, President Biden have gone after TikTok in the way that Trump has done? Probably not. Would he have gone after Huawei? Probably yes. Yeah. Um, but I don't see uh, I don't see much reversal of the 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 kind of drift, negative drift in U.S.-China relations. And given how central technology policy is to the the new battle between the U.S. and China, I don't think that President Biden is going to reverse some of what Trump is doing. And indeed, it's pretty clear over recent weeks that those around Trump, fearing that he may lose, are pushing through a whole host of quite aggressive moves against Chinese technology in order to tie the hands of the new administration. So you saw uh, last week or the week before the launch of this uh, clean network uh, mm. plan, which is trying to create a more coherent framework for some of the slightly arbitrary announcements that have come out recently against TikTok and WeChat and others to try and create a, a kind of system that the U.S. is creating in which it tries to encourage its allies to avoid connections with the Chinese Internet and places new restrictions on technology companies to that end. And, and so I, I think it, you know, I, I think basically Trump is is either going to win, in which case he's going to push <laughs> forward with this for sure, or even if he loses, he's going to leave a legacy that Biden is going to find quite hard to overturn, even if he wanted to. Sure. Well, thank you so, so much for joining, James. Uh, really fascinating conversation and have a great day. Much appreciated. Lovely to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Cheers. Thanks, James. All right. All yep. the best. Bye. Bye-bye. So, Summer, 
I know you are a TikToker. Is hey. that correct? How dare you? Okay, no. <laughs> I consume the content, but she doesn't, you know, come up with her own TikToks. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's start there. You know, I'm just gonna make it clear. <laughs> Line in the sand. What would you do if TikTok uh, went bye bye? Would oh, you be Lord. sad? Y'all got rid of Vine. Y'all got y'all gonna get rid of TikTok. What do I do now? <laughs> reels. I feel like Instagram Reels just going oh, reels. Oh yeah, that shit. Oh my god, TikTok like retweeted that announcement post from Instagram, and they were like, oh, hmm, they? "Looks familiar." Yeah. And then they try to be cool about it, but then like um, somebody said, "Yeah, it kind of looked like Vine, doesn't it?" Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> do you actually? Because I know you're on Twitter a lot too, which we both mm. are. Do you Ooh. consume a lot of TikToks on TikTok, or I mean, would you feel you can just still get the best TikToks on Twitter? Because that's sort of what I feel. Yeah. All that being said, I never have been on TikTok because I refuse actually. That's fair. <laughs> but yeah, I've definitely been spending less time on TikTok nowadays. Like, cause like Twitter has, you know, picked the best ones, and now I just have a curated feed. Why go look exactly. at them? Why go look for them myself? I mm. feel like I'm gonna see the top TikToks on Twitter, and they're on Instagram too. But yeah, exactly. Um, I actually just read a book about Instagram. Uh, what was it called? No Filter. Really great book by I think her name is Sarah, Sarah Fryer, who is, uh, I believe, a Bloomberg reporter covering Instagram since it launched. One thing that we may not remember, but that was covered in this book, was that when Instagram launched Stories, which was a blatant copy um, Snapchat, from Snapchat, yeah. they were actually very, very um, upfront about that. And they basically said in their announcement, yeah, like this is a copy of a feature from Snapchat, but Snapchat, like big ups on them. They invented this new way of communication, but we're going to start doing it too, we think. Everybody will start doing this, which was kind of true. Yeah. Did Did you see Summer? Did Did they do that with this announcement? Did they say, "Hey, yeah, we're just copying TikTok, but so it goes"? No, I think it was just like introducing reels, like you know, it was like the freaking Apple keynote, like, "Look at this beautiful <laughs> new thing! Look at yeah. me, my total neck! I am announcing it to you! What a brand new invention! Amazing, love it!" <laughs> it sounded like that at least. <laughs> Well, apparently, um, I did read a story that uh, kind of a review that said it sucks. Instagram reels, uh, it's no TikTok. I've seen that. Yeah. Is it available here? I, I haven't like seen it at all. Have you guys? I don't think it is. Right. I don't think it is yet. Maybe not yet. I don't see it yeah. too. What's the um, TikTok scene like in in Singapore here, Summer? Who are you? Do you have any local TikTokers that you <laughs> are your favorite? <laughs> Huh. She does. She I does. do not. I do not. Oh, you don't? Go, 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 go. I don't know. Because like, okay, this is like subgenre that scares me. I don't know about favorites. I don't really have favorites. But mm. this is definitely a subgenre that scares me. It is little kids on TikTok. Stop it. Mm. Go and study or something. I don't know. Then I feel like I'm a boomer now. Because these kids are as young as like, what, 13? I can't tell anymore. And you are twerking? Like, oh, I just dear. know this from my little baby cousin. She's showing me. Her classmates that are kind of twerking. <laughs> mm. Where's your, where are your parents? Um, yeah, it's disturbing. And there's been uh, pedophilia problems on yeah. TikTok with people like, you know, looking for young kids to sexually harass or whatever on there, um, which yeah. YouTube had a huge problem with that as well. But I think YouTube kind of um, dealt with it or has improved it. But yeah, TikTok's really kind of the Wild West. Mm. Um, I met a, a, a Singaporean lady the other day who we were talking about social media and she was like, yeah, my kids are on TikTok and it's terrible. And she's like, they're like eight and 12. I was like, shit, that does, mm. that does sound terrible. 
Yeah, that's like whoa, that's like really young. Yeah, I guess like you know that was the big biggest like accusation in the last like few years. I mean, obviously we're gonna get to the information part, but um, yeah, it's not like regulated as well. Um, yeah, I don't have TikTok. Like you know, there are some social media that just passes you by. I think Snapchat passed me by. Yeah, and I think um, you know TikTok's probably one that I'm I'm okay with not having. Oh. Me too. <laughs> well. I think um, it's really interesting, as I discussed with James, as to TikTok's like status right now because mm. they're blocked in India, um, yeah. which was a huge market for it, and they're soon to be blocked in theory in um, the U.S. Although who, who knows how that's going to work out? So it could, I could see TikTok like, you know, all social media can be. Um, ephemeral and can become super popular and then can fade out and become not popular anymore and, yes. and fail. Um, mm. But this could really increase that entire process by some very large and key countries banning it. So who knows, maybe next year there'll be no TikTok, which I would love actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it's just so funny. Like if you think about it, like, uh, cause you know, obviously Microsoft is one of the, one of the companies that, I mean, it's the main company that's trying to buy them out and yeah, just we want Bill Gates on TikTok. Go, go, go. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's 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 uh obviously you know like the um information, um alleged 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 information um accrual and if us get banned by our favorite friend Trump, then okay. it's uh you know it's a domino effect. I feel like you know that's probably like a key market that you want to be a part of. I think. If they don't, if they don't end up being there, then you know, um, I don't like you said. Like I don't think we'll see TikTok next year. Let's see. Well, anyways, guys, that is this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, please subscribe. The Coconuts Podcast is available everywhere you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Um, give us a listen next week, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to support Coconuts and our weird and wondrous stories, you can become a Coco Plus member at coconuts.co slash membership, make a Patreon payment at coconuts.co slash patron, or buy our fresh merch at the Coconut Shop at shop.coconuts.co. The Coconuts Podcast is a Coconuts Media production. Our hosts are Byron Perry, Vim Shamugam, and Summer Lee. Our production manager is Clarissa Cortez. Our editor is Rainer Lynn.